Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies a podcast channel in the New Book Network. Uh, I'm your host, Joshua Donovan, and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Laura Robson to the program. Professor Robson is an assistant professor of modern Middle Eastern history at Portland State University, and she earned her PhD in history from Yale University. Professor Robson is the author of Colonialism and Christianity in Mandatory Palestine and the editor of Minorities in the Modern Arab World, New Perspectives and co-editor of the newly published Partitions, A Transnational History of 20th Century Territorial Separatism. The subject of today's podcast, however, is her second monograph, States of Separation, Transfer, Partition, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, uh, which was published last year through the University of California Press. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today, Professor. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So uh, could you start by telling us just a little bit about uh, yourself, your training, and uh, how you came to write this book? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my first book, which came out of my dissertation, was a history of Christian, the Christian communities, Arab Christian communities in Palestine in the Mandate period. And so I started to become interested in um, you know, the concepts of how ethnicity and religion played into nationalisms and nationalist movements, particularly in the context of empire and decolonization. And so when I came to write this book, I was actually interested initially in doing a kind of history of internationalisms and internationalist ideas in the Arab world um, in the 20th century. And which I still think would be a good idea at some point. Um, But when I went to the League of Nations archives in Geneva, I sort of happened to come across these documents that recorded this commission's attempt to come up with some kind of resettlement plan for the Assyrians of Iraq in Brazil or British Guiana or South Africa or Timbuktu. Um, And it just seemed such a bizarre moment that I thought, you know, this is really something worth exploring in greater detail. So I kind of dropped my original project idea and um, went with this. And this book was the result. This book covers a a really transformative era in Middle Eastern history, a story that is probably familiar to most uh, who are, you know, engaged in in the scholarship on the region, but I think is often underappreciated. And so just for our, our readers, you begin with the origins of what you call uh, demographic manipulation. So could you explain uh, as, as briefly as, as one, one could, uh, how do we get from four centuries, over four centuries, of an expansive, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, and multilingual Ottoman Empire to aspirations and, and realizations of ethnically, religiously, and nationally homogenous nation states? So I think that, I mean, this has been one of the big historiographical questions that historians of the Middle East have been grappling with for many years now, right? It's one of the central questions of the field, I think, at the moment. Um, and I think that one thing, there are a couple of kind of historiographical interventions that I wanted to make with that this book on that question. And one is that this is a global issue, right? It's not something that's just happening in the Middle East, but rather that there's this moment, which I would argue comes right after the First World War, where ethnic, ethnically homogenous nation states emerge as the only viable option for political action and political institutions in the post-war global order. And so I think when we think about why this happens in the Middle East, we also have to think about why this happens on a global stage, right? Why is it um, that 
these multinational empires are suddenly no longer considered kind of viable options in terms in in terms of the, st- the structures of the global order. And of course, it doesn't just happen in the Ottoman sphere; it happens in Central and Eastern Europe. You know, it happens like, across across the globe in many respects. So, I think that one thing I wanted to do was kind of set this in a bigger frame and think about you know what it is that creates the emergence of this idea of the ethnic nation state, not just as one viable option, but as the only viable option for um, the post-war international order. And the other thing that is more specific to the Middle East is that I wanted to explore the role that Zionism had in emphasizing ethnic nationhood as the primary best mode for political sovereignty. Um, And I think that's something that people really haven't much addressed, you know, despite the prominence and, you know, proliferation of work on Palestine, Israel, you know, we haven't really thought enough about what the effects of the Zionist settlement in Palestine and the group, the, you know, development of a kind of proto-state and then a state there based on this idea of ethnic nationhood. We haven't thought enough about the effects of that outside the borders of Palestine. So that was another thing that I kind of wanted to, wanted to do here. Um, I also like, well, and so part of that, I I suppose, is an answer to this next question, but I, I liked how you also spoke of 19th century antecedents, right? That is to say, it's not just uh, the the League of Nations, it's not just San Remo, um, but you talk about uh, historical changes that had already been going on prior to World War One, Zionism being one, um, but you talk about a couple of others as well. I was wondering if, if you might want to share those with the re- uh, listeners. Yeah, I think there are a few there. I've kind of identified three um, threads that feed into this kind of rise of ethnic nation statehood um, and ethnic separatism, I think, in particular. And one is this set of both British and French colonial policies that were based on conceptions of colonial ethnography. And I think this is particularly important because in the 19th century and, and coming into the 20th century, both the British and the French empires made use of colonial ethnographies as modes of control, right? So we see this in India with the British separation of Hindu and Muslim electoral franchises, for instance. It's something that happens repeatedly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, We see it in Algeria with the French delineation of Algerian Jews as having different political rights than their Muslim compatriots. Um, And that those are not, those are not nationalist models, right? Those are, those are not policy decisions that are taken in order that these communities will have kind of a full expression of their own political identity, but rather they are explicitly imagined as modes of imperial control, right? They are intended to preempt the emergence of secular nationalisms that would encompass all of these communities and thereby perhaps be able to challenge imperial authority. So I think that that's one very, very important precursor to this idea. And it's also kind of explanatory, right? Right? Because it tells us that these kinds of ethnic separatist policies are put into place not for the purposes of um, you know, giving political control to the communities themselves, but for the purposes of imperial control on the ground. And I think that's a model that works very, very well indeed, um, you know, in the interwar Middle East in particular. And then, of course, we also have this other set of historical occurrences in the late Ottoman Empire in the late 19th and early 20th century, where we have the rise of ethnic separatisms, national separatisms in the Balkans um, in particular. And the argument I would make there, which is not my argument, but has been the emphasis of a lot of recent historiography on this period, is that it's not the case, as many people I think popularly think, that ethnic feeling led to violence and separatism on the ground, but rather the collapse of empire, the local resistance that that collapse kind of engendered, 
led to violence that in turn gave rise to ethnic separatism. So violence causes ethnic nationalism rather than the other way around. And I think that's that's something that recent research has demonstrated really clearly. So then in a way, when we get to the post-war period in the Middle East, we have a kind of perfect storm, right? That we have the rise of Zionist settlement, we have the um, explicit goal, right? Um, both in Zionist and British terms and league terms of making Palestine a Jewish national home. And then we also have this recent memory of the kinds of Ottoman ethnic violence that take place not only in the Balkans, but of course, um, in the Armenian provinces during the war. And then this model of colonial rule that involves separating out ethnic and religious and national communities for the purposes of imperial control coming out of both the British and the French empires, who, of course, are now ruling over much of the Middle East as well. So I think it's the space where we see those we see those three precursors coming together in particularly toxic ways by the time, quite early on, by the time we get to the early 1920s. Excellent. I I quite like that explanation and liked it in the book as well, because um, it sort of disrupts or or decenters uh, the League of Nations from the typical uh, Eurocentric focus. Um, I I want to turn now to to something that I saw was unique in terms of Middle Eastern studies, uh, or at least less common in Middle Eastern studies that you do with this book. And that is oftentimes when we deal with these sorts of issues of uh, colonial governance, nationalism, or minorities, there's a tendency to focus on either one community or one state, um, like your first book did and like many others. Um, But for this project, you organize the book into a series of themes that are not strictly uh, chronological and and that cut across an array of of religious and ethnic uh, so-called minorities. Um, And as you talk about refugees from the Balkans and Armenians, Assyrian Christians, Jewish Zionists, you have a a really trans-regional approach that that covers histories of of Turkey, Armenia, Israel, Palestine, Syria, and Iraq. Um, And so given that you've done both of these approaches now, the sort of single state, single community kind of approach and this broader approach, I was wondering if you could reflect on some of the pros and cons. Um, Maybe more specifically, what were you able to do with this trans-regional project uh, that you couldn't do with just a single group or country? And conversely, what difficulties did you encounter in including such a diverse group of cases? Well, it's always challenging, you know, to look at different historiographies. And this book certainly introduced me to quite a lot of historiography that I was previously, you know, quite unfamiliar with, um, particularly on the Armenians and Assyrians, who ended up being a fairly major part of the book. Um, I think, though, that you know, in a way, it's very odd. The way the historiography has developed for the 20th century Middle East is, is quite peculiar because on the one hand, so much of our public commentary about the region emphasizes the newness and the fragility of these borders that were put into place immediately after the First World War. And, you know, the way they were constructed by the the, the British and the French empires. Um, and, you know, emphasizes the kind of contingent nature of those borders and the breaking up of, you know, greater Syria. And, and at the same time, so much of our writing about the area is focused in these national frames as if they constitute some kind of natural political organization, right? So I do think that, you know, it's really worth thinking if we're going to say, you know, we, we need to understand how do we move, as you put it in, in the beginning, um, how do we move from an understanding of this as a kind of broad pluralistic space to one that is ethnically and nationally particular and communally particular as well? Um, you know, it's worth thinking about these things in a bigger frame. So I think that I I was very excited about the idea in this book of going beyond the borders of Palestine and thinking about, you know, if we automatically assume that Palestine is, of course, you know, connected into the fate of greater Syria in the late Ottoman period, why aren't we doing research like that? Are are things really so radically different after 1918 or 19 or 20, right? Um, So I do think that it gave a new... it, it gave it presented new opportunities 
for understanding how, both how that Ottoman history continues to operate, right? How people continue to think about these regions as as basically a single political entity in certain respects. That's certainly true for greater Syria, right? Um, and also to think about, you know, how these international institutions like the League and the mandate system um, that these areas kind of come under also operate as a kind of umbrella organization that that bring these areas together and, and their fates together. So I think that that was, that was a, an, a really valuable intervention for me to think about, you know, that this was, this was an important, it's an important corrective to kind of assuming that the borders come down in 1920 and then things are permanently separated. So I I do think, of course, there are challenges to that as well. You know, I, even after this book, I think that, you know, I, I, I know the local scene in Palestine much better in some respects still than some of these other case studies that I've looked at, you know, and there are definitely historiographical benefits to having a really specific local focus to understanding those communities at a really micro level. Um, so I think that there's that area as well. So I would say that, but, but I do think, I think we need more of these trans-regional histories, right? We need to, we need to stop assuming that as soon as the borders come down, um, that these states are on their own separate trajectories. That's clearly not true. And I would argue that in particular, it's not true that Palestine is operating in isolation from the rest of the region, right? What's happening in Palestine is impactful in Iraq. It's impactful in Syria. It's obviously impactful in Jordan and Lebanon. And that's true for the interwar period. Absolutely. I agree. So with with that uh, sort of defense of trans-regional projects, um, I wanted to turn now... um, to the the different topics that that you outline and and first after explaining the origins you you speak of of refugees in particular uh assyrian and armenian refugees right displaced as a result of world war one um what were some of the early solutions proposed for this uh this refugee problem out, first of all, that the refugee problem in some ways, certainly for the Assyrians, is one that's created by the British, right? They brought this Assyrian community into Iraq themselves. So I think that one of the most disingenuous aspects of colonial policy in the interwar period was this assumption that there were these minority communities who needed colonial protection, right? Which is clearly a self-serving kind of uh, legitimization of colonial control, Um, you know, when in fact many of these, so so this is actually an argument that gets applied in Palestine as well, that the Jewish settler community, European Jewish settler community in Palestine becomes a quote unquote minority requiring external assistance. Um, And, you know, so that's, those communities were introduced into Iraq by the British at the end of the First World War, and then set up as a refugee community. So in a way, it's it's a creation of a refugee problem um, that then requires a solution. So I would argue that this is actually quite an instrumentalist approach to colonial rule, right? That the more of these kinds of interventions you can make that are required on the ground, the stronger your case is for remaining in Iraq, more or less permanently. In the case of the Armenians, it's different, of course, because that's a refugee problem that was created by the Ottoman state. Um, And I think that in that instance, too, though, the French and the British, to a lesser extent, clearly viewed the the, the Armenian refugee community as an opportunity. Right. And it's been well documented the ways in which the French made use of Armenian refugees um, in their in the military to act as um, colonial soldiers, especially in the context of the revolt of 1925 to 27. Um, but also to articulate geographies of rule within a Syrian state that was proving to be not so easy to pacify. Right. So I think that, you know, refugee issues that we, we need to move away from seeing British and French and League policies as 
humanitarian. Um, that in fact, what they were was seeing these refugee communities, sometimes created by the colonial powers themselves, as opportunities to exert control on the ground and also kind of claim a moral high ground when they were challenged in an international arena about the nature of mandatory control. So, you know, we can see that in a lot of these early proposals, the moving of the Assyrians around Iraq in the years immediately following the war. Um, for At first, they were, quote unquote, resettled in a refugee camp at Bakuba um, near Baghdad, and then later on moved to Mosul as and the, and the villages around Mosul as the British were trying to stake their claim to have Mosul and the province of Mosul included in the mandatory state of Iraq. So as in refugees, that there are a number of proposals to, of course, the proposed state of Armenia as a kind of, you know, moot project fairly early on. Um, and so the French begin to think about how they can make use of this enormous population of Armenian refugees to secure Syrian cities, and then later on to resettle Armenians in border areas in places like the Jazeera, where they're having trouble maintaining control. So I think that, you know, most of these resettlement projects, refugees actually become quite important to the exertion of colonial control on the ground, and they prove very useful not just because they're dependent on the colonial state, which they are in many cases, um, but also because they can kind of simultaneously provide a mode of control on the ground that moving them around requires this physical presence of the colonial authority. Um, and that in some ways, refugees are acting as an extension of that colonial authority. But then also a kind, they also provide a kind of rhetorical legitimization of that colonial authority at the international level. And we can see that over and over again in the documents that how useful this refugee question became to the assertion of the necessity of continued British and French control over Syria and Iraq and British control over Palestine as well. Right. And and you also talk about how in in the process, um, the identity of of minorities, who these communities are, is is very much in flux. On on the one hand, uh, there are efforts to build a national consciousness among refugee groups, and I suppose to some extent we can see this in Armenia many 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 decades later with the realization of, uh, of an of an independent Armenia. But then you have other groups that don't have a, a national consciousness recognized, and instead uh, they become minorities that have to be integrated and, and protected into majoritarian states, according to the British and the French. Um, so how, how does this change come about, and, and uh, why is it that some communities ended up having different fates uh, than others? So I think this is a really interesting question. Um, you know, I, I I would say, first of all, that the concept of minorities and majorities is one that is new in the post-war period, right? We don't see the word minority being used anywhere, really, in the way that it is now. Um versus, to describe an ethnic or national or communal group that is in purported opposition to a majority defined in the same terms. So that's a new idea in the post-war period. And it's one that is deployed by colonial authorities um, quite often, and particularly in the context of their kind of self-explanations to and at the League. But I think that when it from the perspective of the communities themselves, this is really a double-edged sword. That on the one hand, refugee communities in particular, and even communities who are not refugees but who owe their presence to colonial authority, like the Zionists in Palestine to some degree, um, you know, they recognize the usefulness, the potential usefulness of this alliance um, in terms of accessing jobs, in terms of accessing, you know, economic opportunities, and often in the absence of many other options, I would, I would point out. And so sometimes we do see examples of communities on the ground saying, yes, you know, we are interested in kind of conceiving of ourselves as a minority nationalism within the state. But I would argue that more often what happens is that on the ground, we have expressions of a desire to assimilate to some degree, right? Assyrians and Iraq are very interested in participating in the new Iraqi state, 
by the time we get to the mid-1930s, we have Armenians running on anti-French, anti-colonial tickets in local elections, right? So I think that, you know, there is actually a lot of protest of this enforced separation um, from these communities on the ground who can see that their real political futures could lie in a more integrated conception of the nation state. And they would be, they're interested in pursuing those avenues. The thing that happens though, is that the people who are really interested in homelands and ethnic homelands and actual physical geographical separation of these communities are in the diaspora. And we see this over and over and over again that, you know, Assyrians and Armenians and Jews who are writing from the U.S., from Chicago and California or from France, you know, from Marseille or from Latin America um, are writing into the league saying, no, these communities need a separate space, right? They need a separate nation, nation state that is that is sovereign, that has borders where we can keep other people out. And I think that my theory about this, the argument that I make in the last chapter of the book, is that the reason for this is that this kind of claim to ethnic nation statehood gives them an advantage in their new locations, right? That if you are an Armenian American trying to make a claim to participation in American political life, it is helpful to be able to say, I have an ethnic national homeland, right? Just like the Irish, for instance, like the Italians, like these other immigrant groups, right? That is identifiable, that is part of the West. This is a theme that we see over and over again, right? We are part of the West. We are not part of Muslim life. We are, we are opposed to the Turks, right? Um, so they're making claims about their belonging and their participation in the project of Western civilization that will be useful in the, the domestic context of American politics. And I think that that's really where we see, you know, when we're talking about responses of the communities themselves embracing those minority labels, that's happening much less often on the ground in the Middle East than it is around the globe in diaspora communities. So I, I, I wanted to ask you then a little bit more uh, about minorities, uh, because your work is clearly building on some of the scholarship that shows just how constructed uh, the category of minority is in uh, particularly in the region, but but really that it's uh, part of, of these broader European discourses at uh, the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and I'm just kind of curious because you deal with uh, several different kinds of minority groups, um, at least three different uh, categories, religious minorities, ethnic minorities, and national minorities. And, you know, and sometimes, of course, there's overlap or there's a, a combination. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, do you think that these distinctions matter either in the way that minority communities identify or, or make rights claims or in the way that the international community dealt with? It's an interesting question. You know, I would say that um, they have to be, they all have to be constructed from the top down in very similar ways. And, you know, I'll give as an example, you know, something that I talk about a bit in the book that isn't a major focus, but is clearly relevant is the Greek-Turkish exchange of 1923, where the League of Nations oversaw a forced population transfer exchange, as they called it, um, between the newly constituted states of Greece and Turkey. So assigning the label of Greek to Anatolian Christians who were therefore stripped of their, their national identification and relocated, forcibly relocated to Greece. And equally, Muslim Greeks who were assumed to now be Turkish um, because they were Muslim. So this is a good example of how international institutions, when they came up with these labels of minority and majority, they actually couldn't make use of nationalisms to determine who would stay and who would go, right? Because that's a meaningless concept on the ground to a vast majority of these communities. Um, and so they end up using the religion label instead, which is a, a, a more recognizable category at a local level, um, and then kind of 
assigning a national meaning to the religious categories of Christian and Muslim. So I'm actually not sure that there is that much of a difference among these different categorizations. I think that, you know, this is one of the things that's always so difficult to kind of explain to public audiences about the Ottoman period, that communal designations exist and linguistic designations exist and national designations exist, but they don't map neatly onto modern nation state labels um, in the way that we sometimes imagine. And that's a process that has to come from above, from outside. And I think that once it does happen, you know, once you have given people the label of Greek or Turkish or Palestinian or Zionist, right, that once, or Armenian for that matter, or Assyrian, those labels become a venue of access into an international system. So people commit to them, right? People decide, okay, this is how I'm going to access the petition system or the minorities commission, right? This is, this is the, the venue that will be most useful. And so individuals commit to these labels and communities commit to these labels and they become meaningful in new kinds of ways. So I would not argue that they're, they, they don't mean anything, but rather that, you know, we can watch the process of how they come to mean something and that they have very little in common with the pre-1920 or maybe earlier than that, maybe pre-1878 you know, understandings that communities have of their own religious, communal, national, linguistic, ethnic identities, that those two things are not the same. Um, so I think that maybe it doesn't actually matter that much. I think maybe there's not as much difference um, among those types of minorities as we might think. All right, and then so since well, since you've mentioned the population transfer of uh, between Greece and Turkey, uh, I think that serves as a, a nice transition to the next uh, next form, uh, next ambitious scheme of of ethnic engineering, as as you call it, um, which was the population transfer. So, uh, could you share with our listeners what the the imperial logic was behind this, and what some of these population schemes were? Sure. So early on, um, in the kind of immediate aftermath of the First World War, as the mandate system was getting formulated um, in Palestine and Syria and Iraq, um, there were a number of schemes to resettle Armenian refugees in and around Syria in ways that would benefit uh, the French colonial government. So initially, that looked like placing them in kind of suburbs around cities. So this happened in Beirut, in Aleppo in particular, where there were, you know, many, many thousands of survivors of the genocide. Um, And then a bit later, there were these kind of resettlement schemes to move Armenians out into the border areas. So these resettlements, these transfers um, had the purpose ostensibly of creating Armenian enclaves. So the French government and mandate government and the league were making the argument that maintaining separate Armenian neighborhoods was part of this project of maintaining the Armenian nation state in exile. And so they made this very explicit argument about that to the international community and particularly to international Armenian kind of diaspora and, and, Armenian supporting groups in places like Britain and France. But in fact, of course, these resettlement schemes were intended to serve the purposes of colonial governance. So they were being moved to areas where where their presence would be um, detrimental to the rise of Syrian nationalisms. And that's particularly true in the Jazeera Um, where a number of nationalist activists in the 1930s started to refer to these communities as being like Zionist settlers, right? That they were worried that um, these were, in fact, colonizations, that's a word that comes up in this context, of, of of, of land that might thereby be carved away from the Syrian state in its post-independence form. So I think that, um, that, and something similar happens in Iraq, where there are these resettlement schemes for Assyrians that are technically, you know, that are that are sort of 
supposedly designed to maintain Assyrian cultural practices, linguistic practices, religious practices, um, but but that are actually designed to serve the imperatives of the colonial state, and in particular to hold on to the province of Mosul, which, as we know, is an oil-rich space that the British were very anxious to preserve within Iraq. Um, So I think that, you know, there are these resettlement schemes that kind of have as their stated purpose, the maintenance of national um, characteristics. I, I have an example in the book that is quite telling, I think, that in Bakuba, the early refugee camp for Assyrians and Armenians in Iraq, um, they separated out the Assyrian and Armenian children into separate playgrounds so that they wouldn't kind of contaminate each other's national mm. traditions, right? Um, so there, there is simultaneously this rhetoric of nation statehood and the preservation of nation statehood, and then the practicalities of these resettlement schemes are intended to support colonial rule. Mm. What were some of the uh, the political, social, and, and humanitarian impacts of, of these transfer schemes? You you alluded to this with with the example of of moving children, but to to think about population transfers just on a logistical level is, I think, really in, in, incredible to to conceive of, hard to conceive of. Absolutely, it really is. I mean, I think. So the toll it takes, you know, happens on a couple of different levels. I think that one is, of course, the actual death toll of moving people around like this, which is particularly dramatic in the Assyrian case. Um, But in, in all of these, you know, in every case of population transfer, these kinds of mass deportations are physically harmful, of course. Right? And they involve violence in many instances. So that's that's one thing. I think on a more kind of political level, one of the purposes of these transfers is to geographically articulate separation from the majoritarian nation state that is emerging, right? To make Armenians and Assyrians permanently communities that stand outside a majoritarian nationalism. And that's something that these communities continue to struggle with, right? I think many of their leaders recognized even in the moment that this was going to be politically destructive for these communities going forward and particularly in any kind of, you know, post-colonial setting that they would they would be permanently tagged as collaborators. Um, you know, but but that and that that remained an issue throughout the mandatory period and afterwards. And I think in the Assyrian case, the most famous instance of this is the massacres that of Assyrian civilians by the Iraqi army in the aftermath of Iraqi independence in 1933. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can see that, you know, there are tremendous tolls that are taken both by the actual fact of the forcible movement and by the kind of political separation of these communities from their host spaces in ways that proved very, very difficult to refer. So maybe the most dramatic of the transfer schemes actually comes after the massacres when the League of Nations and the British come up with this ludicrous and insane idea to remove the entirety of the Assyrian community from Iraq and send them somewhere else to British Guiana mm-hmm. or to Brazil or to, you know, Suriname or Timbuktu or really Australia, anywhere that had what they thought of as quote unquote empty land. Right. So I think that, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that tells you the kind of toxicity of this idea for those communities by that point um, that, you know, the, the the only solution that the league could conceive of at that at having created this problem was now an even more dramatic removal scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know there are a lot of there are really tragic consequences for these communities to these policies that continue to the present day. I mean these these communities are still struggling against the idea that they are they represent a kind of external collaborator um, and that is at odds with a majoritarian nation state. Right. Um, so after this falls out of favor as uh, a solution, you then say that uh, partition becomes uh, much more in, in vogue. And of course, uh, you acknowledge uh, antecedents to this as well, um, but turn mostly to uh, to the partition of Israel-Palestine. Um and I'm I'm wondering just because uh, so much has been written uh, ab- about this particular and 
probably the most infamous partition of the Middle East. Um, what new light uh, did you hope to, to shed on the, the demographic engineering uh, that came about as a result of the partitioning of British Mandatory Palestine? So I wanted to do two things. One was to situate it in a broader regional context and to say, look, the partition of Palestine is not something that just comes out of local politics in Palestine, right? It is the next logical extension of a politics of ethnic separation that dates from 1920, that dates that that we can trace all the way through the interwar period and actually further back if we look at kind of antecedents. Um, So I wanted to suggest that, you know, I think this is this is a problem with the historiography on Palestine is that we assume that political developments in Palestine have to do entirely with the specifics of local conditions on the ground, right? Rather than global settings, rather than the kinds of internationalist authorities that are beginning to emerge during this period. The idea of partition of ethnic separatism comes out of this more general intellectual sphere in which the the physical separation of different ethnic and religious and national communities has come to seem useful to the empires in this kind of anti-colonial age. Um, So I wanted to, I wanted to set the stage for that and say, you know, look, this isn't just about what's happening between Zionists and Palestinian Arabs in on the ground in the 1920s and the 1930s. This is also about the, about the Greek Turkish exchange. It's about policies of ethnic separatism and the creation of minorities elsewhere in the mandates in the Middle East, um, you know, that this is part of a kind of broader intellectual history that we really need to acknowledge. So that's one thing that I wanted to do. Another was to trace the emergence of this idea of minority and how it began to apply to a settler community in this colonized space, which I found, which was something I kind of only really realized when I started to look at the League archives. And it's actually a very peculiar development, right? That this is a moment of the rise of the idea of minority rights as guaranteed by some kind of external international authority. And that in the context of Palestine, this began slowly, gradually, to take the form of casting the Jewish European settler community in Palestine as a minority that required this kind of external legal protection. And that that was the one of the primary grounds um, for advocating partition. And so I think that that's something that we really haven't looked at enough is the kind of international legal structures that enabled partition and made it seem like a kind of logical quote unquote solution to what was now being cast as a kind of ethnic local ethnic conflict on the ground. Um, So I do think that there are things to say about partition that haven't been said, despite the kind of extensive historiography that we have on this period. Oh, I, I completely agree. I, I should just say for the record, and I, I, I liked how you situated it in, in the, the broader discussion of demographic engineering that certainly did not start with UNSCOP in 1947, uh, 1948, as you show. Um, so then finally, you talk about uh, diasporas, and you, you've already sort of explained for us um, who uh, who these diaspora actors were and uh, and what they were doing right and offered I, I think a, a pretty com- convincing thesis on uh, on why they might have what might have motivated their political activism um, but I, I'm curious uh, if if you could share with our listeners if, if you have any examples that come to mind of particularly fascinating or unusual examples of diaspora activism. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I looked at quite a lot for this chapter was these letters that came into um, the, the peace negotiations at Paris in 1919. And it is truly remarkable. And, and actually, that's a pattern that continues that we have these diaspora groups coming from all over, from, from Greece, from South America, from, you know, Africa, from Asia, um, writing in about the fate of their co-religionists or their, you know, their ethnic, their, their ethnic communities um, to the league. So I think there are a couple of interesting things about that. And 
One is that they continue to feel, I think that many of these communities, whether we're talking about Assyrian communities in Chicago or Jewish communities in Argentina um, or Armenian communities in Marseille, that they continue to feel that their own political fate in their new spaces is tied in with the success of these projects of ethnic homelands, right? And so it's really interesting, I think. I mean, I was just blown away by these letters that would that came in um, from Assyrian communities in the U.S. supporting the project of moving the Assyrians of Iraq to Brazil or British Guiana, um, you know, which was something that virtually nobody in the Assyrian communities in Iraq wanted to happen, right? There was almost no local support for that idea within those communities themselves. If they were going to be transferred anywhere, you know, they would have voted for Syria, which was obviously much closer and more familiar. Um, but, but we have these communities saying, you know, any kind of empty land anywhere we could go to Australia, we could go to British Guiana, you know, this is a good plan. And, that's really striking, I think, not least because it's very clear that they have these commu- these people who are writing in are not themselves proposing to be part of this resettlement, right? They're not going to leave Chicago to go and be part of, you know, some kind of re-envisioning of an Assyrian homeland in British Guiana. This is not what they think. So there must be some other explanation, right? There had this has to benefit them in some other way. There there has to be some other reason that they're supporting what is, you know, frankly, an insane plan, um, and one that would have hugely detrimental effects on the actual people being moved. Um, so I think that you know we really do need to think about the politics of diaspora, and I actually think that this is true for Zionists as well. That you know the kind of level of demand for an ethnic homeland that's coming from the diaspora is is different and has different goals um, than than what people are saying on the ground in in the issues. Um, so I think that, you know, it's really worth thinking about the effects of those diaspora populations. And that, you know, kind of finally, another thing I would say is that these diasporas were also useful to the imperial powers and to the League because they could be cast as voices of local support for these projects of using these communities for imperial people, right? And so they get a kind of prominence in the archives and a prominence in lead publications and that sort of thing that they probably don't deserve um, because because they are supporting projects that are essentially projects of imperial dominance um, for reasons that have to do with their own precarious position in the U.S. or in France or in Latin America. Um, so I think, I think this is actually something that, probably could use greater elucidation in other contexts that we haven't thought very much about the role of diasporas in the making of the modern Middle East, um, and that it would be something worth exploring in greater detail. I agree, and can attest to their prominence in the archives. I mean, I've come across some of these these zany letters myself from cities in the United States that I didn't even know existed, um, and they were telegramming Paris uh, with various opinions, uh, calling Faisal a, a despot and things like that. Um, so I, I was excited to to hear you start to um, to address these. Uh, sort of activists in in your book, and and also agree that uh, that more work can certainly be done. Um, I, I just want to then close with uh, a discussion of the of the present day, because of course, when we think about uh, partition, um, even population transfer to some extent, uh, certainly, di- uh, you know, refugees and uh, and diaspora communities, whether it's you know, forced diaspora or refugee communities or, or just longer, longer standing diaspora communities. All of these issues, I think, have uh, some contemporary relevance. And so I was wondering, having uh, done all of this research uh, for these sorts of, and you know, demographic engineering schemes that began 100 years ago, uh, what light that has shed for you when uh, at the same time you're, you're reading today's headlines and, and thinking about contemporary problems that we're dealing yeah. with? Well, first of all, I would point out that these exchanges actually are taking place now, right? This is one of the things that kind of happening in Syria, that we're seeing kind of forcible swaps of communities on a more local level. Um and it's also, of course, been a feature of political commentary to suggest that redrawing the borders of Syria or Iraq 
um, along ethno-national lines might serve as some kind of solution to what has become a you know, a set of intractable conflicts. So I think that there are a couple of things to kind of take away here. One is that there's nothing natural or inevitable about the idea of physically separating ethnic and religious and national communities. That in fact, it's an idea that has a very specific historical origin point and that it's basically a colonial one. Um, so, you know, the idea that this could solve it, I, the idea the idea that this could solve a problem of ethnic conflict has no historical evidence behind it at all. And in fact, I would argue that the idea of partition, the idea of population exchange, you know, these are not ideas that were ever intended to solve ethnic conflicts, but rather to create modes of intervention and legitimizations of intervention on the ground. And that there are many ways in which it's not hard to see that process continuing in the present, right? Because anytime you draw a new border or move a community, you need some external force to go in and help you do that. Um, so I think that I think we need to be wary of assumptions that physical separation constitutes some kind of maybe regrettable but anyway natural solution to ethnic conflict. I think another lesson that we can take away here is that there has been no such thing as homogenous ethnic national religious spaces. You pointed out the ways the Middle East has historically constituted an extremely pluralistic space. One of the things that happens in population exchanges or transfers or forcible relocations or whatever we want to call it is that people have to be violently rooted out because there are no spaces that are homogenous. There are no spaces where, you know, there's only one identifiable community living. So I think that we need to recognize the fundamental violence of that process on the ground um, and not think of it as some kind of peaceable solution because it's not, it requires violence and force. Um, so I think that, you know, it's really, it's really centrally important not to think of these as solutions. They were never intended to be solutions. They were intended to be mechanisms of control and that's what they continue to be in the present day. Excellent. So the, the last question we always ask um, is now that this book is done, uh, what, what projects or, or things are you working on uh, in the future or hoping to work on in the future? Yeah, so I'm, I, my next book project is going to be another kind of a big transnational one, an even broader one, um, that is a history of structures of mass violence in the metric going from the late 19th century to the present. So I'm hoping that this will be a kind of political economy take on the creation of ethnic, communal, national um, structures of mass violence to think about how resources over that period, that, that modern period, um, have been have accrued at the local and national and interna international levels um, along ethnic and communal um, lines. So I'm hoping that this will be another project that really looks very broadly at the kind of, you know, puts the Middle East into a global context and says, how do the, these structures of mass violence come to be? Who's advocating for them? What do they look like on the ground? How do they cross national borders, right? How can we understand the emergence of a place as a kind of locus of mass violence um, over the course of a relatively short period of time? So that's what I'm going to be looking at and kind of thinking about some of the broader literature on genocide and ethnic cleansing, as well as the regional literature on the Middle East and trying to create a kind of new approach to thinking about the 20th century writ large. Great. Well, thank you so much again for taking time to sit down with us um, and talk about states of separation. I really appreciate it. And I think our listeners will too. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. 